welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I am co-hosting today, and in studio with me is Pastor Peter Martin. How are you? Doing good. Yeah, good to be here. Yeah, we're we're happy to be, be with you this uh, awesome Monday in Southern Arizona. We are live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We are uh, doing a weekday 5 to 6 p.m. Bible Answer Program, and you can uh, join us live online as we live stream to multiple platforms. And uh, we encourage you that if you have a question about the Bible, about uh, the Christian worldview, or how it relates to other world religions, join us. Join us on Facebook. You can uh, check us out right here uh, at uh, CCF Tucson. So you go to facebook.com forward slash at CCF Tucson. That's our Facebook church page where we live stream all of our services, special events, and of course this weekday Bible program, Bible answer program. So we encourage you to go watch it. comment, ask your questions in the chat section, and we'll get to those questions as quickly as we can. We try to take them in order. We also live stream to YouTube. And if you do happen to catch us on some of these social media platforms as we're live streaming, we'd really encourage you to subscribe, hit that notification bell so you can know when we're live streaming a service or a special event. We have just an awesome team of pastors here who on occasion teach and, and and speak here, but our senior pastor, Scott Richards, uh, <clears throat> just uh, really, I, I just love being a part of this fellowship, especially when it comes to the, the Bible teaching. If you want to follow us on YouTube, it's A Reason for Hope 546. That's our YouTube handle. It's at A Reason for Hope 546. Now, if you uh, are a big Rumble fan, we are going to be posting this broadcast on Rumble. We aren't live streaming there yet, but soon, hopefully. So if you do so, uh, we'd appreciate it if you'd follow so we can grow our audience there. And if you want to avoid social media platforms altogether <clears throat> and would prefer to just go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, that's calvarychristianfellowship.com. You click that watch live on the navigation. You can not only watch our services as well as this broadcast, but you can comment, ask questions, and even make prayer requests right from the live stream. We also have a an app that you can download from the Apple or Google Play Store. And on this app, <clears throat> you can not only watch all our services, this broadcast, but you have a nifty little digital Bible where you can follow along in the scriptures. You can choose translations. You can leave notes for yourself. You can keep up on current events going on here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And you can also join chat groups, make prayer requests, uh, and so much more. So we'd encourage you to download that onto your mobile device. And we also live stream our services and this program to all Amazon Fire products. So if you have one of those, you can add our channel, as well as Roku. So you can add our Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson channel on your Roku device. Now, if you have a little bit more of a sensitive question you'd like us to address here on the program, and would prefer to email us, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all letters, no numbers, at gmail.com. I think I covered everything. I think so. <laughs> well, before we get started on today's uh, Monday topic and then get to your questions, we're going to take a moment to pray. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, Father, we love you so much. We're grateful for you. We're thankful for this time in which we get to delve into your word. I do pray for this broadcast that it would uh, be glorifying to you and to your truth, that all those listening would be benefited by it and blessed in their relationship with you. We honor you, God, and we want to seek your truth right now and in your name. Amen. 
Amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, on Mondays, every other Monday, we, we've been highlighting a, a specific individual influencer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is the right word. <laughs> influencer yeah. uh, in the old sense, but um, um, people who have really shaped the modern mind, especially, especially in the West. And right. we've covered some personalities such as... Yeah, we've gone through Friedrich Nietzsche was the first guy we went through because he was the one that really wrestled with the idea of what the death of God would mean for the West, uh, even though he was an atheist. And then we also went through John Jack Rousseau, just rewinding a little bit. We've gone through Percy B. Shelley. We went through the Marquis de Sade. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to get to some more well-known people. So those of you guys who are going through the series, you may not have heard of any of these guys. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they've influenced Western thought, but I've never heard of them. <laughs> now we're going to get into some people that you have heard of, uh, starting day with Charles Darwin. So I, I wanted to actually start today by going through some various quotes and ideas that are embedded in Darwin's writings, which his most influential and famous one is On the Origin of Species. That's the one you're going to learn about in school. Uh, but also the descent of man in which he gives his philosophy that underpins his scientific evaluations of, of nature a little bit more breadth, right? He gets into it a little bit more. So I wanted to get into those today, but I was really struck as I was reading these books that Darwin was not actually an atheist. And that was shocking to me because I had always learned that he was an atheist in school. Uh, in fact, Dawkins, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the great proponents of evolutionary biology today, um, quotes Darwin pretty readily. He said that Darwin's great contribution to the world is it allowed atheists to be intellectually fulfilled. So uh, everyone who talks about Darwin speaks of him as if he was a full-fledged atheist. But actually, I was surprised to see at the end of On the Origin of Species, his seminal book in which he actually describes his theory on how complex life forms adapted and evolved over long periods of time to get all the different varieties that we have today, he never actually suggests that random chance produced life. He believed that God actually did seed life on the planet. He actually says that probably about four different types of biologic life and then different types of uh, plant life. And then through those types came all the different variations that we see today. That was really mind-blowing to me, so I had to do a little bit more research. I was like, was this guy an atheist? Was he a deist? What happened? And I came across a really fascinating article, which is not actually an article. It's uh, the introduction to a book that now I have to read called <laughs> Darwin and God, written by Nick Spencer. And it seems like a pretty fascinating book, really fascinating character, uh, uh, personality study on the individual of Darwin and what he believed about God. And what Nick Spencer shows in this particular book is that Darwin began as a Christian and then slowly kind of devolved into an agnostic. So he never became an atheist. In fact, this is one of the last quotes we have from Darwin. It was given in 1879. I believe he died in 1882. Uh, this is a letter he wrote to one of his friends. He says, in my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist in the sense of denying the existence of a god. Right, so it's a pretty clear-cut statement there. I've never been an atheist when it comes to denying of God. Uh, beyond that, what I also didn't know is that his wife was actually a Christian, uh, and a pretty faithful Christian, as it seems, from the writings of Nick Spencer. So it, it, it paints Darwin in a really interesting light. It really shows kind of why he started to believe the things that he did, why he became increasingly agnostic to the existence of God. And I believe the main point that it all centers around is his desire for absolute certainty. 
So as he became more and more engaged in the sciences, he developed an idea that you can learn all things through the physical sciences, which is something that many philosophers warned about. So when the methodology of science was developed in the West, it started to become very appealing to the elite because here's a method of discovery in which you no longer have to use reason and inference. You can just prove things almost like mathematically. And it's really, really cool. And because of that, you get guys like today, Stephen Hawking, uh, in his book, uh, I believe it's called The Blind Watchmaker, he makes the statement that philosophy is dead. And he comes up with this theory, he calls the theory of everything, in which science will definitively prove all things. We won't need to rationally discuss anything anymore. We'll just know it emphatically. We'll be able to prove it utilizing the scientific method. And you see that Darwin becomes really enamored by his ability to discover and understand things. He's a brilliant thinker. Uh, going through his books, I'll tell you, he's a very, very brilliant thinker. He was a methodical scientist. Incredibly well. methodical, to the point where if you try to read one of his books, you'll be incredibly bored, right? He spends pages talking about the body structures of insects and how they procreate. It's, mm -hmm. it's really methodical, it's really tedious to read, to be honest. But he was an incredible scientist, incredibly brilliant. But you could see how this certainty starts to settle in his heart. He's like, oh, I can know things for certain. And that belief starts to erode his faith because we know that Christianity is not mm -hmm. something you can know for certain. And that bothered him. So this is actually a quote from Blaise Pascal. Uh, me and Bo were talking about Blaise last week. And uh, so I just thought it would be cool to quote him because he saw this, right? This is about 200 years before Darwin's time. And he saw the rise of science and the rise of pure reason coming out of the Enlightenment in Europe was going to lead, he feared, to not only a lot of atheism from people that are antagonistic to the church, but a lot of Christians to lose their faith. And in his seminal book called Pensies or Thoughts, he says this, the chief malady of man is restless curiosity about things which he cannot understand. And it is not so bad for him to be in error as to be curious to no purpose. So he's saying that Christians and atheists, all of us alike, understand that the big questions of life, why are we here? What is my purpose? Uh, where am I going? Where did I come from, right? All these big, big questions. He's realizing you'll never be able to totally know this for certain. You can get close to certainty, but you can never get to absolute certainty because none of us knows for absolute uh, sure what the answer to these questions are. But what he says is, is that it's better from the theistic point where we believe that there is an answer out there, but we might be wrong about it, than to be an atheist and believe there actually is no answer. <laughs> it's, just, it's just all whatever we make up in our own minds. So that's just kind of an interesting dig that he, that he puts at the atheistic worldview. But the point of bringing up Blaze is because I think a lot of modern people fall into the same trap as Charles Darwin of beginning to think that they can come to absolute certainty about God. And when they realize, oh, I can't, it starts to devolve their faith. And I'm going to talk about how it specifically manifested in Darwin's faith in several ways that I see happening all the time. And how specifically universities target these absolute certainties that a lot of Christians have when they leave home and go from the church, a strong kind of foundation in the church, into kind of an antagonistic world of the university. But before we get there, is there anything you want to add or, or clarify on what I just said? No. <laughs> All right, cool. I, I mean, I, I, I always thought that Darwin 
believed in God, but was more of a deist. Right. <clears throat> that was kind of my, my understanding. And that his thinking that there was definitely a watchmaker, mm-hmm. but in a, de- a deism is the idea that God created all the natural. He created the universe. He initiated. Mm-hmm. Uh, he got the, the clock wound up and going. Yeah. And, and then from that moment forward, which is the beginning of time, the beginning of the universe, <clears throat> everything occurs through natural processes. Right. No supernatural, no ongoing supernatural intervention, whereas right. creationists... We believe that God intervened right. with each species, with plant life, with the the sun, moon, and stars, and so on and so forth. It wasn't that God created the initial singularity and said, okay, I'm going to just let this, and built into it all the abilities to evolve the way it has, right. which is, I think, what <clears throat> what led to Darwin's rejection of Christianity and in Jesus and the Bible as a record of of. God's creating the universe and so on. Yeah. He began to deny those things. He thought, well, no, everything could be explained through natural processes. Right. So if I can explain through natural processes, that directly contradicts or at least leaves the bl- the Bible sort of as a blind thing. But what was really curious is that he would write to his contemporaries and say things like, no, my, my, my hypothesis is wholly compatible with Genesis 1. Right. But yet... <laughs> he actually says that in On the Origin of Species. He quotes a theologian who he's friends with and says nothing I have said in this entire book, right? The entirety of his theory contradicts anything in Christianity. And, and what I found really interesting was I was reading through the transcripts of the Monkey Scopes trial in the, in the 1920s uh, in uh, Dayton, Tennessee, where a, um, ironically, a math teacher decided to be used by the powers that be as a test case. They were trying to find someone to challenge a Tennessee law that said you could only teach biblical creationism and you could not teach any court of any sort of common descent, which is one of you know Darwin's chief um, foundational influences of modern thought was is that human beings are not unique, mm-hmm. but they're just part of the animal kingdom, right. and that we have a common descent of animals behind us that which led is, to by our the, way, rise. The, the main contention of the descent of man. Uh, which we'll get much more into next week, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, and and what I <laughs> what was so interesting is that all the things that uh, Darwin suggested that made other people cringe, his contemporaries, um, <clears throat> were the exact arguments that the defense used right. in trying to undermine. Because William Jennings Bryan, his, uh, I'm sorry, Clarence Darrow's whole agenda was to undermine Christianity in mm-hmm. that trial. He had no no care about the Tennessee law. He just wanted to make Christians look bad. And he would he was trying to get, you know, uh, the minister, which is the prosecution, William Jennings Bryan, to admit that that Christianity's perspective of Genesis one is ridiculous in a, in a, as it goes far as far as it goes with modern science, mm-hmm. and they were uh, essentially compromising and saying, well, no, we don't see a conflict between, you know, let's say some form of speciation in Genesis one, which undermined the whole case and made Christianity look. Um, sort of ridiculous because mm-hmm. it was it was radio broadcast and that they they say that even though they lost the case the defense lost the case and the math teacher who was teaching evolution was fined a hundred dollars mm-hmm. I don't even know if he went to jail but uh, he was fined dollars back in the twenties is quite a bit of money yeah he was yeah. fined a big chunk of change yeah. and uh, they lost the case but they won the war in a sense right and so I but that all goes right back to what Darwin was saying oh I'm not suggesting anything like this. Well, here we see 
in less than 100 years, it's right. exactly what happens. And then right. in, in less than 30 years after that, they take God out of schools, they take prayer right. out of schools, they take Ten Commandments out of schools, right. completely reshaping the entire, uh, at least in the United States, the, the way that we viewed reality. Absolutely. And I, I would 100% agree with that. I think there are many really sound biblical Christians who could read uh, On the Origin of Species and reconcile that with their faith. You can't read The Descent of Man to do that, though. Mm. So you see, and he wrote The Descent of Man a little bit later, and that's kind of where he gets the idea of, okay, well, if this is the case, where did morals come from? Where did ethics come And he starts becoming a little more philosophical in that book. Mm. Um, and that's really where you get into naturalism and the death of God in his theories. Mm. But he never took the full leap. And, I, and the, the guy who wrote this, Nick Spencer, he makes the theory that the reason why he never took the full leap into atheism is because he had so many people around him who he valued their friendship, he valued his relationship with them, who were sound, good Christians. So he was unwilling to kind of push his faith and just wanted to go back to the science, which I think is kind of interesting. Now, uh, how did Darwin start out? Because when he was growing up, he was given kind of a nominal faith. His family were Unitarians. Uh, and even then, they were very skeptical, especially his grandfathers uh, on both his maternal and paternal side. One of his grandfathers was actually an atheist and actually did believe in the theory of evolution that uh, Darwin would go on to prove, quote unquote, later on in his life. But he became like a pretty orthodox Christian when he went to college. So Darwin went to Cambridge. And at the time, Cambridge was actually a, <laughs> a Christian university. Uh, most people don't know that, but it started as a Christian university. And there he got introduced to a guy named Paley, William Paley. And I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And William Paley was like a rock star. He was like the William Lane Craig of his day. He was a philosopher. He was a natural scientist. He was really, really bright. And so he was able to connect with Darwin at a level that Darwin wasn't able to connect with people prior to that moment. And he was able to show Darwin the logic and the reason of the Bible, and he came to faith in Christianity. Now, the problem is, and this is Nick Spencer talking, I'm quoting now from his book. Uh, there's, uh, I'm sorry, although it is important to know what kind of orthodoxy Darwin had, orthodox, quote unquote, for Darwin meant being able to assent to basic Christian doctrines. It was logical, objective, rationalistic, and demonstrable. Christianity was first and foremost a proof to be established. So what was missing from Darwin, even though he was able to be enamored by this guy's intellect, he was able to rationally discover his faith, his faith was not in a person, his faith was in a scientific fact. That's how he looked at it. God is real because he's provable, but Darwin never had a relationship with God. And we see even his wife later criticize him for that. So he never really had a genuine relationship with God. He just assented to God being real because he was essentially rationally talked into it. That is something that, again, Blaise Pascal warned about 200 years earlier. So uh, let me get into this just a little bit. We're running low on time. But Pascal, when he was converted, because he, he had grown up Christian and all that, but when he was really converted, he had an experience with God that he wrote down on a piece of paper and then sewed into the lining of his jacket, and he died, and no one knew about it until they were kind of going through his closet, and they're like, what the heck is this? And they cut it out, and they found this little document. And I encourage you guys to read it. It's really short. It's called Fire uh, by, by wow. Blaise Pascal, and it's it's fascinating. And he, he actually relates his conversion story to Moses meeting God at 
the burning bush. That's why he calls it fire. And it's really discombobulated. It's just kind of his inner monologue given voice. But essentially what he was getting at when he wrote that, that experience with God is he knew God. He knew of God. He knew about God. He even understood that God was real, but he met God in that moment. He experienced him. And that's why he uses the inference of fire. You don't understand fire. You experience fire, right? You you know it. Fire is, it's not a solid. It's not a liquid. It's not something you could really, it's a plasma. It's hard to understand, but it's it's something you can experience. You know fire. And that's what he's saying is, is experience with God is like, that it's not like touching a rock or it's not like drinking water. It's experiencing the heat of the fire, right? It's, it's actually coming in contact with the supernatural. That was his conversion moment. And so having a relationship with God, which is what he's describing, right? It's not that I intellectually know about my wife. It's not that I intellectually know I'm committed to her or that she's committed to me. It's that I experience her. I have a relationship with her. That's what binds us together. If it was simply an intellectual endeavor for me to understand what it means to be a husband and what it means for her to be a wife, no marriage can run off of that. Hmm. You need to have love. You need to have something underneath it. And I think that intellectual people really struggle with that emotional relationship that God asks, right? The, the commandment, when Jesus asked, what's the first greatest commandment? He says what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. So intellectuals are like, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Right, true. But also with your heart and also with your soul and also with your strength, right? There's, there's a, a totality of being that we give to God as we experience and know him. And that's what the Christian life entails. Darwin never really got along to that. He loved the Lord his God with all of his mind, and that was good. But he never got around to loving the Lord his God with all of his heart. And that was kind of the big foundational missing piece that was in his faith that was exploited later on in his life as he began to study. So after his time at Cambridge, just going to fast forward through some stuff, he ends up going on a, a voyage, through a five-year voyage through the sea. It was on a ship called the Beagle for whatever reason. And this is where he actually traveled to South America and these other islands, and he was able to meticulously, as you said, Adrian, meticulously catalog everything he saw, like literally everything he saw. Later on in his life, actually posthumously, right after he died, the, his actual experiences on the Beagle, his autobiography was finally released. But that was when he started developing his theory of natural selection. How is it that all these varieties of animals exist? And the going theory was that God created every variety out there, maybe with slight differences that people cause through, in, through breeding animals. But for the most part, God created specifically every species. Darwin argued, no, like that's not actually necessary for us to believe. There might be a mechanism that allows for variations among kinds. The theory of natural selection never proved that it could provide a, a means of transition between kinds. Right? He speculates about it in his book, but he never proves it, and he admits that. Now, this knowledge, this belief system, never actually called into question his faith. What ended up calling into question his faith, and in his autobiography, he's very clear about this. Uh, this is, again, quoting from Nick Spencer. He says, There are three broad reasons for that loss. Doubts about the Bible, uh, moral objections, the Old Testament writers attribute God, the feelings of a vengeful tyrant, and so on, and philosophical problems, primarily that of the problem of evil. So let's, let's go through those three. So 
again, what a lot of Christians do, especially in church, I think we paint a picture of the scriptures that does a lot of Christians a disservice. So some Christians, when they talk about the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures, they talk about it as if these things exist on golden tablets out there that we can go and check up on. And they do their congregation massive disservice by not explaining to them how the Scriptures were written, first off, but secondly, how they were transmitted. That they weren't transmitted in perfect ways, but they were instead transmitted in these kind of imperfect human ways. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have the message of the Bible. We absolutely do. Even uh, Bart Ehrman, who I'll come back to talk about in a second, admits that. But it's that it was transmitted in such a way that we can never have absolute certainty that we contain the exact phraseologies of the early Christian writers. We have quite a bit of certainty. We have more certainty than any other ancient text, but we don't have absolute certainty. So you got guys like Bart Ehrman, who started out as a Christian, studied under Bruce Metzger, who's a really faithful Christian and one of the leading textual critics of his day. Uh, and by the way, I'm not going to get into textual criticism too much. If you have questions about it, you can ask, and I'll, I'll answer it. But uh, for the sake of now, it's just a study of how we got the Bible, right? That's it. It's studying ancient texts, comparing them, and trying to produce as close to the original as possible what was originally written. And Bart Ehrman studied under this guy named Bruce Metzger. And what bothered him was that the Bible was not infallibly preserved that there are what's called variants, right? Different manuscripts have different readings of particular passages. No, none of these variants, by the way, question the meaning of the passage, but there are variants, right? There are different ways that you could read a particular passage. It doesn't change the meaning, but it does change the word order, the spelling, things like that. That bothered Bart Ehrman a lot, uh, and it eventually started to erode his faith, and he became an atheist as well, and he wrote the book Misquoting Jesus where he attacks the uh, textual integrity of the New Testament. But there are a lot of Christians who, again, they're, they're not exposed to this kind of thing. They go to the university, they listen to YouTubers, TikTokers, whatever, and they're exposed to these truths and they don't know what to do with them because they were brought up to believe that you can have absolute certainty. We know that God is real. There's an absolute certainty that we know is God is real. And that's just not true. We don't know for an absolute certainty that God is real because you can't know basically anything with absolute certainty. There's always levels of skepticism in all endeavors of knowledge. You have to accept that. It's baked into the pot. <clears throat> what science gives the illusion of is that you can know things with absolute certainty. And I, I liked what during one of our weeks, week-long sessions with Campus Crusade training, we had J.P. Moreland out. And he said, well, how much certain do you need in order to actually have positive belief in something? Mm. He said, you know, 51%. Yeah. That's all you, I mean, you just need 51% certainty right. to have a positive belief. You know, I think it's probably true. I don't know for certain, yeah. but I, I believe that it's true. Yeah. And he would say things like belief in that God exists. He said, I am probably 95% certain right. that God exists. Right. Other things, uh, maybe 80%. Right. Some things, you know, less orthodox issues, secondary issues. He said, you know, maybe, maybe 65%, but I still believe that it's true. Right. And you can't have absolute certainty on all your beliefs, mm. even things as mundane as what I had for dinner yesterday. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I've seen fellow believers, one uh, in particular I'm thinking of fell away from the faith entirely, but mm. a couple others have really struggled with their faith because they want this absolute certainty. And when they see, you know, talking about secondary issues, even that stumbles people. 
We're like, well, wait, the church doesn't have absolute certainty about these doctrinal beliefs and, and whether or not the, there's a real president in the Eucharist or whether or not this or whether or not that or how we're supposed to pray or what kind of church structure there is. We don't have absolute certainty. And they try to get to this absolute certainty and it's illusory. You can't have it. And I like how he put it, where what God provides us with is gradations of belief, right? Gradations of certainty. The important things he gives a little bit more certainty, but the less important things he gives less certainty. And our, uh, our part, acting in faith, means I am going to step out in faith. And that's, again, going back to Blaise Pascal, that's the whole point of what mm-hmm. he calls his wager, is that you have enough to act, and you have enough reason to believe that mm-hmm. belief in Christianity is more reasonable than the other. So you have to act, and you have to act on something. Mm-hmm. And so you take a step forward, right? Work out your faith. This is the idea. And that's terrifying to a lot of people. Right? And, and a lot of people don't want to do it. And because they can't get that absolute certainty with God, they would rather kind of float in the void. That Very few people go the, the Dawkins route of mm-hmm. there is no God and, you know, everyone who believes that way is stupid. You know, the majority of people just float into this, I don't really know. You know, I, I don't really know if there's a God. And I, I don't have enough information to really put my faith in God or to walk after him or really change my life mm-hmm. as a result of the re- revelation of God. They end up with just a, <clears throat> a surface-level indifference towards belief in the Creator. And then if you question them, such you know, like using the Kennedy questions, uh, you know, if you were to die today and standing before God and he were to say, give me a reason why I should let you into the kingdom of heaven, what would you say? And most people would, you know, say things about their, well, I didn't, I'm not a horrible person. I lived a relatively good life. Mm. And then, and the answers seem to be real similar from person to person. And when you ask the second question of the Kennedy questions, it is, well, how certain are you (laughs) that based upon that answer, would God let you into his eternal heavenly kingdom? Right. And usually that score is pretty low. I'm pretty sure I, and so deep down everyone knows they're failing, right. but they're so indifferent to the reality of eternity right? because of the focus on the here and now, because right. of materialism, naturalism, right. self-centeredness, mm-hmm. focus on the flesh. It's only until they're faced with death do they actually take it seriously. Right. What can I know? And what really makes a difference, right? That, I think that's what we're all faced with is, well, if I can't really know for certain about spiritual things, why look into them? Hmm. And Blaise Pascal's answer is, well, death is eternal no matter what state you are in, right? So yeah, I, I you, like you better this, start wrestling with it. I like this quote, and I don't remember where I, where I heard it from, but it's, God is like the sun, hmm. so bright I cannot look at him, hmm. but without it I can't look at anything. Right. The idea being that life does not make any rational sense right. whatsoever. Morality doesn't make sense. Human, nothing makes, you have to take the Rousseau route. Right. If you're an honest, honest skeptic, right. you have to take the whole route that we're nothing but creatures. Right. And as Nietzsche said, if man's end is nothing, he is nothing. And this is towards the end of Darwin's life. Uh, speaking again of our place as man, he says this, the mind of man is no more perfect than instincts of animals to all and changing contingencies or bodies of either. Our descent then is the origin of our evil passions. The devil under form of the baboon is our grandfather. So what's he saying? We're just a baboon. We're just a higher species. And the fact that I think that raping people is wrong, that's just a result of my natural evolution. It's not absolutely wrong. It's just all relative. That's scary. And you could see 
he hates what he's saying. He doesn't like it, but his logical inferences from his worldview are starting to come mm -hmm. out. Um, because again, he makes this argument in the sense of, man, there's nothing special about our morality. Mm -hmm. It's just something that helps us live. So uh, later on it says, evolution replaced Paley's, so that, that's the Christian that he knew in Cambridge that brought him to faith. Evolution replaced Paley's happy world of delight, delighted existence with the brutal one of Thomas Malthus, in which a dreadful but quiet war of organic beings was going on in the peaceable woods and smiling fields, suffering was a very serious problem. Thomas Malthus, by the way, we'll talk more about him next week. He's the guy who first originally started theorizing about the end of the world as being a result of overpopulation. And he suggested massive, uh, you call them strategic, but I just call them evil methodologies of preventing humanity from overpopulating and mm -hmm. killing itself. Um, so he's one of the most, in my opinion, he's one of the most evil people that's existed. And Darwin actually really liked Thomas Malthus. Mm -hmm. So you see the, the decline. He thinks he's finding certainty, but what's happening to him? As he's pursuing evolution, the things that he knew at bottom, we are special, right? Things that we just intrinsically know, we are special. Morality is real. Truth is real. Yeah. Beauty is real. All these In things are being undermined. Infanticide is a moral evil. Exactly. <laughs> all these things that he just in, intrinsically knew, now all those are being dissolved. Mm. And now in, in the search of certainty, he's becoming uncertain. Towards the end of his life, by the way, he said he became completely uncertain about anything. Because he's like, the human brain, uh, I could get to the quote later maybe, if he says that the human brain is the result of natural evolution, why should I trust it in regards to natural philosophy? In other mm -hmm. words, I could trust it of saying this is a cup because that might help my, my survival, but why should I trust it in inferences to things that can't be proved? It, it, has, no, uh, it has nothing to say for philosophical inquiries because all no. it's there to do is to help me survive. Right, so why should I even believe it if it tells me there is a God or is no God? Yeah, if naturalism, if the if human reason arrived through natural processes, um, micro <laughs> uh, mutations hmm. over millions of years by a accidental mutations hmm. with no design or mind behind it, no plan, no intention, no teleolo teleology behind it, yeah. <clears throat> then what we call reason today arrive through random chance process. Right. And that's a good reason to distrust to not trust, trust yeah. human reason. <laughs> yeah. So if naturalism is true, then it's false. It's probably <laughs> false, we, yeah. Because you usually <laughs> arrive at that through human reason. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, exactly. No matter, so think about what happened to him. In the search of certainty, he's like, I could see this, this is real, this is true, but then the question of what? What if I'm not seeing it correctly? I have to trust my mind that's perceiving it. I remember talking to my friend who was deconstructing his faith and as we were going through, I was like, the first question I got to ask you is, do you think that your mind is capable of knowing absolute truth? And he thought about it for a second. He's like, well, I don't know. I'm like, there's probably not a whole lot of reason into having this conversation than there is it. You know, like mm. if you can't even know yeah. absolute truth, why talk about it? Right. What's the point? Right. The, the only way. And this is what Descartes said. And Descartes had some issues. But uh, Rene Descartes famously said, without God, I, I can't know anything. Right. So without a fundamental belief in God, I can't know anything. Uh, for certain. That's a crazy thing. So this is from his wife, Emma Wedgwood, when they were uh, still engaged. She says, um, may not the habit in scientific pursuits of believing nothing till it is proved influence your mind too much in other things which cannot be proved in the same way and which, if true, are likely to be above our comprehension. That's a lot of wisdom there. I like that. You know, I, I don't know much about his wife, but it seems like she was a very wise woman. 
But that's what she's doing. This, this man that she sees is coming apart in search of absolute certainty. She's saying, you just, there are certain ways that you know things. You're looking for absolute certainty in ways that you can't know it, first off. And secondly, even if you could know it, it's a, it's a little above our pay grade. It's a beyond our comprehension. Mm. Um, as someone who really struggles in the intellectual sphere, uh, really struggles with what I can know, what I can't know, who used to be an atheist, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 130, where King David says, uh, help me not to weary myself with thoughts beyond my ability. Mm. Help me to be like a newborn babe being weaned mm. at you. And it's just such a beautiful thought of just like, look, there's so many things beyond my understanding. God, help me to just be nurtured. Help me to just be be protected and comforted in your love. That I can know. Mm. And allow that to be enough for me. Allow that to satisfy my soul. That is something that I've had to learn how to do throughout my, my life. Now, because we're running low on time, I want to get to this because it's it's such a good quote. I'm going to read it in its entirety. It's it's long. And we're going to, I'm going to say just a couple words on the problem of suffering. Um, so this is, again, this is from the book. He says, his eldest daughter, Annie, had also long suffered from ill health. And in 1851, which is, by the way, a year before he uh, uh, finally released on the origin of species, took her to Melbourne before returning to Emma, his wife, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Two weeks later, he received an urgent message. Annie had contracted a fever. Darwin returned instantly to be faced with a changed child. You would not in the least recognize her, he told Emma, with her poor, hard, sharp, pinched features. I could only bear to look at her by forgetting our former dear Annie. The following week was the worst of his life. Annie rallied, then sank. She showed signs of recovery and then of fading fast. Unable to eat, she slowly wasted away. The doctors remained quietly confident. Darwin sat holding her hand, alternately overjoyed and then distraught. Eventually, she died at the age of 10. Most Victorian families lost children. Darwin himself had lost two others in their infancy, but Annie was his favorite, and he had witnessed every last degrading moment of her short life. The experience nearly destroyed him. It seems to have been the final straw in Darwin's gradual drift from faith. That is, as a parent, as a dad, reading that section, and I like how Nick Spencer treated this and how he explained it in graphic detail. I've gone, I've seen hospital visits of people who are wasting away in infirmity. And it is, even though I'm not related to these people, it's one of the hardest things to look at, right? To watch somebody die. And what he's saying is, again, as a dad, I couldn't even imagine this, to watch your kid waste away in illness and infirmity. And when she finally passes, all of his wrestling with his faith, all of his wrestling of if there's a God, he comes to almost a final conclusion of, I don't care. Any God who would allow that to happen in my life, I don't want anything to do with. And therefore, his pursuit of God, his pursuit of faith ended right then and there. Again, he never became a full atheist, but that was the final nail in the coffin of his faith. Mm. And uh, this is a last quote from the same section. He says, his theory of evolution had alerted him to the reality and apparent ubiquity of suffering but he could, or at the very least, could try to rationalize and cope with that. From death, famine, rapine, and the concealed war of nature, we can see that the highest good which we can conceive, the creation of the higher animals, has directly come. He wrote at the end of his 1842 species sketch, the key question was, did that highest good justify the concealed war of nature? Darwin's tentative answer at the time, at least in 1842, was yes. But with Annie's death, 
Suffering moved from being a theory to being horribly painful. Whatever faith he had in the loving, just God of Christianity died with his daughter at Malvern. Um, again, just powerful passage. Just, uh, you know, it really moved me. I was reading it today. The problem of evil and suffering, while I can theorize about it and I can explain theodicy, I can explain our belief system in a loving God in the midst of a cruel world, when you experience it at this level, it's enough to shake the faith of just about anybody. It shakes the faith of Job in the book of Job. It shakes the faith of Jeremiah. It shakes the faith of Ezekiel. It shakes the faith of Isaiah. It shakes the faith of the apostles. Everyone you can think of in the Bible, when they confront suffering at this level, their faith is shaken. Uh, even a guy like C.S. Lewis, read his book, A Grief Observed, and read about how this, this man, this great man of faith, was rattled to his core by the death of his wife, watching her die from cancer. And what you realize is that this is a very serious problem and one that we have to walk through as Christians, one that we have to reconcile. So again, I could give a lot of rational reasons to believe why God will allow it. For me, the center of it is always the cross. I always look to God allowing his son to die for my sins, and I reconcile with that. But ultimately, it's something you still have to suffer through. When you go through it, you have to grieve, you have to mourn, you have to be able to look to God and say, I don't understand this, but I'm going to pursue you. And that's where the experience of God becomes the foundation stone for getting you through grief. If you have not experienced God, if you don't have a real relationship with him, there's no way you're going to be able to intellectualize yourself outside of grief. There's just no way. You need to be able to come to him and to seek comfort within him. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to happen. And again, look in the Bible and see how people suck comfort in God. Mm. They say some not-so-kind words to him and about him, but they know that he's a safe place. They know they've mm. tested and they've, they've tasted and seen. They've known he's real. And so when they come to him with their questions, they believe they're going to receive an answer, even if it doesn't fully alleviate their questions. They know they're going to get some answer from God, and they're going to find peace in their suffering. And, uh, you know, I've written extensively about it. You know, you could read my book, Fellowship of Suffering, where I talk about the role of the church, the role of community in comforting those who grieve. Mm. But ultimately, again, it begins with, do you have some <laughs> sort of a relationship with God that's going to weather you through that storm? Mm. If you don't, again, there's just no way. And all of us are going to endure something like this. Death is for everybody, and that means that either you'll die young or you'll watch people you love die. And if you don't have, again, this faith in God, this anchoring faith in God, uh, there's just no way you're going to be able to weather that storm. Your faith will, will take a huge hit, and it may not be able to recover. So my encouragement to those Christians out there, uh, if you have faith in God, pursue a relationship with God. Pursue knowing Him experientially and in reality. That's what's going to get you through pain and suffering. Intellectual rationality, that's great, but it's not going to get you through the realities of life. And don't mistake in that idea that that somehow faith is the opposite of truth mm. or knowledge. It's yeah. not what we're saying. Yeah. That faith and reason are two sides of the same coin. You can't approach God by sheer reason, right. but you also reason is uh, a a sort of a leap of trust based on good reason, based on the evidence. Yeah. Um, you know, I add anything to that thought of what the biblical definition of faith is to kind of help encourage well, that? I think I'll wrap it up with a quote from Pascal, because why not? <laughs> we kicked it <laughs> off with Pascal, we might as well end with it. Because some can read Pascal and think that that's what he's saying, that rationality has no, has no place 
in our relationship with God because it's all about experience. But that's not at all what he said. That's not at all what he believed. And so he's, uh, he says this, men despise religion. They hate it and simultaneously fear that it is true. To remedy this, we must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is venerable, to inspire respect for it. Then we must make it lovable, to make good men hope that it is true, finally. We must prove it is true, venerable, because it is perfect knowledge of man, lovable because it promises us the true good. Hmm. Right, so he's saying that you can't hope for Christianity, you can't experience God if your mind is convinced that it's irrational and a fairy tale, right? Fairy tales are not comforting at a deathbed, I'll tell you that. Uh, you need to have some semblance that this is real. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I think Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien said it really well as well in his essay on fairy stories. He says that the beauty of Christianity is it's the true myth. It's the one that we desperately want to be true and the one that we're relieved because it is true and can mm-hmm. be proven to be so. So it's not that rationality has no place here. It's that rationality alone can't get you to the certainty that you want. You have to supplement with that with faith and mostly with experience. And by the way, experience is a method of, of knowing mm-hmm. things. So it, it, it not only supplements, but it also strengthens our faith and rationality mm-hmm. in God. Uh, but anyway, let's Good uh, stuff. Yeah, let's, 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 get let's, let's hit the question. We've got about uh, a little bit of time left. Um, let's go with uh, uh, Mac. This is a Good question. Good question on eschatology. Uh, do you guys believe in post-tribulation or hmm. pre-tribulation? And I'm assuming he's referring to the rapture. Hmm. So do you believe in a post-tribulation rapture or a pre-tribulation rapture and why? Yeah, no, it's a very, very good question. So there are different views on this within Christianity. Um, the more mainstream view, the, the view that's kind of taken in the last couple hundred years, I would say, it's taken more of the predominant uh, evangelical perspective is the concept of uh, we call post-millennialism, right? The, the idea that there is going to be a literal millennial kingdom that Jesus is going to rule and reign You mean pre-millennialism. Sorry, pre-millennialism. You are correct. Uh, pre-millennialism, the idea there's a literal millennial kingdom that's going to come, mm-hmm. that the subject matter in the book of Revelation is future events, not things that were satisfied in eighty seventy, And the debate of pre-millennials... Or, or allegorical. Right, or allegorical. Some, some proponents suggest that the book of Revelation is just a a hyperbolic gospel presentation right. for first century Christians. Right. And those, those would be like the hyper-preterists, right? I, I'm not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, you can take the book of Revelation as hyperbolic, uh, a secret gospel message yeah. uh, without necessarily believing that all biblical prophecy has been fulfilled, mm-hmm. just that the book of Revelation, I'm trying to think of his name, uh, very popular, uh, Greg Boyd is a proponent of this idea that the book of Revelation isn't fulfilled prophecy per se, but rather uh, just a esoteric gospel message. Given during a time where persecution was so heavy that you couldn't do it in clarity. Yeah, a big big follower of Greg Boy was one of our, uh, one of the guys I would serve with in Turkey, Hmm. in Albania, and we'd have long debates. (laughs) He would do, he would just be regurgitating, then he'd give me, you know, links (laughs) to Greg Boy talks, and I, and I would break it down and say, here's why I disagree, and (laughs) we'd have long car ride discussions, it was always great. (laughs) But for the sake of simplicity, let's just take those three views that, the book of Revelation is literal, that it's foretelling future mm-hmm. events, and uh, that, that we're taking it. Again, it doesn't mean that there aren't metaphoric or symbolic elements to it, but it's that there is a literal event, there's a literal tribulation coming, there's going to be a literal last day's kingdom, and there's going to be a literal rapture, a taking up of the people of God. The debate in premillennial camps is when does that happen, right? So 
Uh, you have premillennial pre-tribulation rapture, right, which is before the tribulation begins, the rapture of the church, the uh, catching up of the church into heaven is going to happen. There's uh, kind of mid-trib, which are people who believe that kind of, in, it's either called mid-trib or pre-wrath. They show, and it's true, that the tribulation period is broken into halves. There's the first three and a half years uh, in which the Antichrist is ruling and reigning, but there's a relative peace uh, happening on the earth, right? He's, he's actually created a peace and a treaty amongst all the nations, and the wrath of God is not really being poured out in its totality at that point. But then at the midway point, the Antichrist reveals himself to be such, and he does so by actually declaring that he's God and that everyone needs to worship him. And then after that moment, there's kind of the second half of the tribulation where things really ramp up. So that's where he begins to actively persecute and execute anyone who will not subscribe to his religious belief system. And then the wrath of God really ramps up after that point. So mid-tribbers believe that that's when the rapture will happen. It'll happen once this revelation of the Antichrist is about to occur. Um, and then post-tribulation believe that it's after it's all done, right? So after all the wrath of God is poured out, what will happen is they see the coming in Revelation 19, also described in 2 Thessalonians 2, as like a king entering into his kingdom, right? And at the time, when you had a king kind of coming in, especially one that was going to wreck shop, the people faithful to the king that were a part of the kingdom would go out to meet him, right? They would go out to meet him, and then they would enter into the city with him in victory. And he would, you know, put down the rebe rebels. Yeah. The, ra the rapture and the second coming of Christ are synonymous events. We go meet the king, we go up clothed in flesh and come back clothed in glory, and then we reign with Christ for a thousand years as he reigns on earth before, and he chains up the enemy, Satan gets put in bondage, and then after a thousand years he is let loose and deceives the nations again, yeah. and then uh, the creation of a, or the reconstruction of a new heaven, new earth, and so on. But yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good synopsis of the three positions on the rapture. Yeah. Uh, so why would we believe in which one? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so just start it off. This is a definitely probably like a tertiary issue to be honest. It's it's uh, in my reckoning, it's pretty low down there on how important I play, how what importance I place upon it. But uh, so I, I wouldn't actually break fellowship with someone who disagrees with me on this. I may not even talk about it if it's going to be contentious, right? If someone wants to sit down with me and philosophize about it and talk about it, good, good on you. But if Choose it's going to your get, next words wisely, because I may not have to speak to you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if it's going to get like hot and it's not worth the effort, in my opinion, to talk about it because it's just not a primary issue in my life. It's not even close. So for me personally, I bend towards uh, pre-trib rapture. And, and the main reason, there's a couple that I could give. The main reason I would give, though, is that there is a doctrine of imminency within the Bible that Jesus says to watch. Uh, he says, no man knows the day or the hour. And these seem to be very literal statements. They seem to be statements in which Jesus is saying, you're not going to know when I'm coming back. The problem is, is that the book of Revelation is meticulously laid out even by days. And so if you could know the start date of the tribulation, you could also know the mid date and the end date. So if I'm in the tribulation, what that means is, and what do you know, how do we know the tribulation has begun? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel says that it will begin when a peace treaty is signed with many nations by the Antichrist, right? That's, that's day one. You could then calculate when the mid-tribulation is going to be. It's going to be halfway through, and he gives it by the day. Yeah, 1260 then, days. Exactly. I think it's 
correct, right? Well, I think it was something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then you could calculate the end of the tribulation. So my problem is, is that if I could calculate it, Jesus is wrong when he says no man can know the day or the hour, because what he should say is no one can know the day or the hour until the tribulation begins, and then you could calculate it to the day. That's problematic for me. Uh, there are a couple other reasons, but that for me is kind of the main one. Now, to be fair, there are good arguments against the position that I have. Uh, I don't really have time to get into it, but if, if you're curious, Mac, you could, you could ask what, what I think the best arguments against uh, pre-tribulation rapture are. Uh, but that's uh, that's kind of the primary reason why I believe it. I, I also <clears throat> appreciate the uh, second argument is that if if the Daniel's seventieth week, the, the mm -hmm. tribulation period, the seven years of judgment that God has decreed mm -hmm. to take place, uh, and, and it simply we're just waiting till uh, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in <laughs> for yeah, that, to, yeah. uh, and, and and some other things too with uh, pertaining to the nation of Israel. But the idea that if God, if the if the tribulation period is the act of God bringing judgment upon the nations and pouring out His wrath, hmm. He would not pour out His wrath on His people. Right. I mean, if He was willing to spare Sodom and Gomorrah, right. if there was just ten righteous human beings there, hmm. as Abraham so uh, cleverly talked him into, well, how about ten? How about a hundred? How about uh, yeah. what if there was just you know? And he and God said, I will spare the city if that's right. the, or the cities if, if that's ten, the case. Yeah. If, if that's how God operates, it makes good sense to say that before there is the pouring out of any kind of wrath, of right. judgment, uh, that, that, that he would remove his people. That if the they're faithful, the ones who have uh, received forgiveness and uh, clarity and grace from God through the Son would not be on the kind of receiving end of that wrath. Yeah. Also in 2 Thessalonians, <clears throat> Paul describes their, this presence of something uh, preventing yeah. uh Satan and the enemy from deceiving the nations further, right. and that until that sustaining presence is removed, right. the end cannot come. Right. And it's kind of assumed, but I think it's good reason to believe that that's the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit's presence is inexorably connected to the church as yeah. indwelled saints, that to remove the Holy Spirit, you have to remove the church. It's really interesting. Uh, again, I'll try to give this really quickly. Do we have any more questions? Uh, yeah, we have quite a few. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, but go ahead for this really, really idea. Quick. So uh, Tom Holland, who's an agnostic, he's not a Christian, wrote a book called Dominion. This mm. is really excellent about the history of the church. And in it, he makes this really fascinating argument, even though he's not a Christian, he doesn't believe it, that the church, uniquely in the West, is all that's preventing a recapitulation of the Roman Empire. Uh, and he points out that all the revolutions that have happened in the last 500 years have been attempts to bring back the Greco-Roman classical era uh, which many atheists and Enlightenment thinkers believe to be the kind of prime state of man before the church came in and ruined everything. So I think it's really fascinating that in the book of Daniel, he describes the last days Antichrist empire as a recapitulation of the Roman Empire, right? It's going to come back in some sort of a form. So even from guys like Tom Holland, he's, he's, he's leery of the fading faith of the West because he believes that once the church's light goes out, we go right back into the classical era. And Nietzsche also theorized about this and was very frightened about what could happen if the church was blinked out of existence and the atheistic world hadn't come up with a better system of ethics and morality uh, before that happened. So yeah, if the church was taken out, that would definitely bring about an empire kind of like Rome, which is kind of interesting. And then, and, and I was talking about Second Thessalonians, I thought I might, well, might as well go ahead and read it. Yeah. In the be beginning of chapter two, uh, the apostle is saying, look, don't worry, 
if, if you're thinking that Jesus has already come back because you heard a message, you got a letter that Jesus has a return, that's not the case. Um, and then he goes on in verse 5, he says, Don't you remember when I was still with you? I told you about this, and you know what currently restrains him, meaning the lawless one, uh, so, that you will be re- so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and bring him uh, to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of false miracles, signs and wonders, and, and so on and so forth. And the idea that, and then he goes on to say in verse 10, with, uh, with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who do not believe in the truth but enjoy unrighteousness. So the idea here is that there's a restraining presence, and until that restraining presence is removed, um, the revealing of the lawless one will not take place, which is the culminating moment of the mid-tribulation point. And so at least in the first half, if not sooner, uh, the restrainer has to be removed. And if that is the Holy Spirit, then it has to be the church. Right. No. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast, and we'll try to get to your questions if we miss them today, tomorrow. So please be sure to tune in again tomorrow at 5 p.m. Thanks again, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.